Coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we speak with national faith leaders, advocates, authors, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces and you are listening in. And this week, we are joined by Robert P. Jones, who you'll hear me call Robbie. I've been knowing him for a while now, and I'm going to take that liberty. (laughs) He is the president and founder of Public Religion Research Institute, PRRI, and the New York Times bestselling author of several books, including The End of White Christian America and White Too Long, the winner of the 2021 American Book Award. Hello, somebody. Yep, it was that good. And most recently, you might have heard the hubbub about his newest book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. So I invited Robbie to speak with us today because Robert's work with PRRI, coupled with his outstanding work as an historian and the homework he has done himself as a Southern white man, has the power when brought all together to help us understand our current moment in the United States of America, the political moment, the social moment that we are in, and the religious moment, and point the way forward toward the beloved community. So we'd love to hear your thoughts. I want you to tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper, or actually, let's just say thread. (laughs) I'm weaning myself off of that tweet platform. Um, Or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. You can also hit us up over at um, IG, Instagram, or Facebook. And we want you to keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think. Our audience is growing and it's so exciting to see that we have, we have like, you know, scores of downloads now, which is like, yes, scores of thousands rather. <laughs> Sorry. Scores of thousands of, of downloads, people all over the world who are listening religiously now to the Freedom Road podcast. And we welcome you. We thank you. And we are excited that we are all on the journey together. So, Robbie, you want to dive in? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's do it. Thanks for having me. Okay, Robbie. So we normally start with our faith journey on this pilgrimage, because I just really want people to understand Mm -hmm. kind of who it is we're talking to and and how they are connected on a faith level to the content we're talking to. So can you tell us a little bit about your own faith journey and, you know, what's the genesis of your faith story? Sure. Uh, Well, you know, I grew up in the church. I grew up uh, as a Southern Baptist in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, And I was, you know, that kid who was at church all the time, like all the time. I was, you know, even as a teenager, it was not unusual for me to be at church five days a week. Um, So, you know, that's that's the world I grew up in. I was in the youth group, uh, you know, um, every time the door was open, I was there. Um, and I went to, you know, a, so I went to public schools, but, um, uh, but when it came time to go to college, I went to a Southern Baptist college. I went to Mississippi college, just 20 minutes from my hometown. Um, and then I went to seminary. Um, so I felt a call to ministry, uh, at the end of my, um, uh, uh, time in college, went to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, you got uh, your bona fides. Okay. You are like yeah. an official white male evangelical. There is nothing that is not white male evangelical about you. I drank pretty deeply at that well. Yeah. And, you know, it was interesting. It was at seminary where I first began kind of getting some critical distance on that world because I was so in it, right? You can't see it when you're just in it that much. And so I I first started getting some some critical distance there. Um, You know, little moments like, like, for example, I never... It was never taught to me or even discussed what the word Southern in Southern Baptist meant. Oh, um, my right? God. I was at seminary. Um, and I finally had a Baptist history professor who said, uh, you know, here's the history. Like our genesis in 1845 of our denomination was uh, because a group of churches in the South um, broke with their northern brethren over the issue of slavery. And so the word Southern is about a Southern way of life as in Confederacy, as Southern in way slavery. of life, slavery. That's right. And, and the whole point of the denomination was to form a band of churches 
uh, where enslaving other people on the basis of the color of their skin was compatible, was seen to be compatible with the gospel. Right? Yeah. That's the Genesis story mm-hmm. of, of uh, my home denomination, which, by the way, um, grows to become the largest expression of Protestant Christianity in the country. It still remains the largest Protestant denomination um, and that has that history. Wow. Um, and, our, and so that, that little crack right in the edifice, I think, uh, there, I mean, it was kind of shocking for me to, wow. to, to get that Southern wasn't just like a regional descriptor, right, but was tied up with slavery, the Confederacy, white supremacy, um, and, and what, so I think wait, wait, really, wait, 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 before you go yeah. forward, <laughs> what yeah. year was this? Give us a sense of the, uh, this would have been 1992, um, I think when oh I was, oh my gosh, yeah. that's yeah, so year a of, while ago dating LA, myself now, but that's the year of the LA uprising. Yeah. Was yeah. it in that same period, same time period? But like, you know, I'm oblivious to any, any you didn't <laughs> have a clue about what was going on in LA at that time. Really, wow. I mean, you know, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, maybe it was like on the background, the newsreels, but yeah. like nothing that like really entered my consciousness, wow. you know, as anything significant. I mean, yeah. that's just how insular, you know, this world was to me. So like that wasn't even in conversation with this other yeah. thing going on. Another another question just real quick is, yeah. um, did you marry your high school sweetheart or your college sweetheart? No, that's I did awesome. not. That's very um, typical of, of folks in that. Yeah, world, it is. So. Yeah, no, no. In fact, um, no. Uh, it, it's it, it's. Uh, I, so I met someone at seminary um, that, that that I married, but did, oh, not okay. my. Yeah, <laughs> no, I did not the, my the, that's the story of my parents, though. My parents met in eighth grade. Um, oh my god! Stayed together uh, pretty much uh, since then. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Keep going. I'm sorry. Yeah. No. So I mean, I, I think it's been a very slow. There was not a kind of you know. Uh, Pauline epiphany moment where everything shifted. It was, it's really been this very slow journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, you know, like I said, 1992. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't really dig in and write the first book where I'm, I'm really wrestling with this until, you know, 2014. Um, right. So wow. you know, we've got a long period of time there where this stuff is kind of percolating in me. It's, yeah uncomfortable it's but I don't know what to do with it you know and and so I think through my doctoral work I went to Emory University which actually did give me some good tools uh, mm-hmm. to begin to think about this is where I first read um, Howard Thurman James Cone uh, and really read African-American Christians and I think that was also the aha moment you know if I had one it was really that broke the world open wow uh, you know was this idea of you know Jesus and the disinherited and being on the side of people with their backs against the wall, mm-hmm. not with, not on the side of the people at the top of the social and political, you know, pyramid. Wow. So you saw, you saw through black faith and in particular our black prophets, another way of seeing God. Yeah. And Jesus, I mean, you know, and, and yeah. seeing not white Jesus, right. you know, um, cause I, I think that was, uh, quite something different. Uh, what was that see. like for you? I mean, like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. how, how did your life with your wife, like, did it, did it, how did it, you know what I mean? Like, what did it, how did it impact your, your daily life when you started to see things differently? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think it means that like I've traveled quite a significant way from my family of origin. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing you could still see, you know, the distance uh, between like my brother and I, for example, or, you know, my parents and, and extended family that are still deeply in the South. Mm. Uh, some of them have come along, some of them haven't, you know, but it meant that I'm on this journey in a very different way and encountering, uh, you know, different sources, different mm-hmm. readings. Uh, yeah. That are really reorienting. Uh, it also, you know, uh, helped, I think that um, the, I was also in the denomination um, and, and at seminary when the seminary was sort of imploding. Um, so our president was fired my last semester, you know, there uh, for being a so-called liberal. Uh, it was kind of, you know, trumped up stuff. But I mean, you know, there was like wow. potentially a coup that happened my last year of, of seminary um, uh, that, that I also think made me kind of like, okay, I was going to step back and reassess this whole, this whole thing. Yeah. I'm sorry. What year was that? That was 94. Um, so uh, this so th- is all really happening pretty quick, like in pretty yeah. quick succession. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I really do want to dive in because there's a lot to cover here. You, you This book is really, truly amazing. I'm going to hold it up so everybody can see it. 
and buy it. Buy the book, buy the book, buy the book, buy the book. This is seriously an amazing book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy. So I'm just, I mean, honestly, (laughs) I have not finished it yet. So everybody, you know, in full disclosure, I'm still working my way through this book, but I am absolutely I'm just honestly blown away by the structure of it, like what you've done with mm. the structure. I know you've been hearing that. I've been listening to a few of your interviews and everybody's pretty like, wow, about the structure. And the reason for it is because what you've done is you've actually d- given us vignettes, but are not just one vignette. It's like three vignettes around around a particular window into into the problem of America, the, the history, the origin story of America and what you've done, which most people have not. I tried to do it. But I did it in another way through fortune, which is to weave together the black and the Native American history. Yeah, that that, right. that yeah. history comes together in my own family story, right? So, but but I love the way that you did it by kind of teasing out the two origin stories of 1619 and the doctrine of discovery. And so we see you working with these two, two not competing, but two origin stories that that actually do tell different stories, but help us to understand how we got to our shared present, mm. um, which is pretty amazing uh, that you did that and, and, and through the structure that you chose. So I want to start actually with the, with the prologue. <laughs> you, okay. yeah. you tell a story I've never heard before. So you tell the story of Robert Hickman um, and his escape from Boone County, Missouri, with 76 emancipated African-Americans and Captain Wood, right, who picks him up mm-hmm. and and like tows them to the port um, in Minnesota, right? Wasn't it Minnesota? Right. Yep. And then, and but he's turned away from the, by the Irish dock workers. My God, do you not have like all the threads in this one story? And then they get to the port that their, their actual military port that they were going to. And just before that, and then the, the people who are going to board his boat are the Dakota people who are being removed from their land. So what you say in this, in your prologue is this story actually captures, um, the first moment of emancipation for people of African descent and the last moment of sovereignty for the native people in Minnesota. So I want you to, you know, share a little bit about what was it like for you to uncover that story? Mm. Where did you first hear it? And then what did you learn? What did you learn about America from that story? And then also as you go into uh, the question of identity. Yeah, no, I love this way, this way in here. Thank you uh, for that. Um, So, you know, how it is when you're working on um, a book and you're reading widely and you're, you know, doing research and you don't quite know where all the pieces fit yet. Um, So originally that story was because I have three chapters on Minnesota. Mm. Um, And so originally that story was in that section on Minnesota because it was part of the Minnesota story. Uh, But as I got to the end of the book, I realized, oh, no, 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 actually, as you said, like in in microcosm, that one little vignette has all the threads in there of how the indigenous story, the uh, African-American story, the European colonizer story, it's all kind of wrapped up in this um, this little vignette. And, 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 you know, it's got one of our, our heroes, Abraham Lincoln, right. Um, yeah. in, the story in a very ambiguous way, right. Because on the one hand, he's issued the emancipation proclamation, which inspires Robert Hickman and his band to escape. Right. And by the way, they were escaping because uh, Missouri was not covered by the emancipation proclamation. That's right. It was not one of the rebelling States. Right. So uh-huh. enslaved people in Missouri were not liberated. Uh, right. by the, but he took it upon himself because he, he was literate. And so he actually had read accounts of it. He was like, okay, we're going to take this opportunity and go. Wow. Um, so there's that weird, you know, that kind of complex piece. But the other thing that I realized is that, you know, that the Emancipation Proclamation sat on Lincoln's desk for quite a while mm. because he was looking for a union victory. He wanted to release it and announce it at a time of strength and not defeat. So mm. he kept waiting on a decisive union victory to, um, so while he's, while he's basically got it composed and it's sitting on his desk and he's waiting for the right opportunity. And while that is happening, he gets this other petition for the mass execution of 38 Dakota people. Um, actually what he gets on his desk is the request to execute 300 Dakota men, um, after, um, some conflicts between the Dakota people who are being starved and deprived of their, uh, provisions by the federal government. And that's, 
Can you just tell yeah. that story a little bit more? Yeah. Like they were being yeah. intentionally starved. Right. So, yeah. you know, um, this is kind of, you could tell the story in almost any state, a very similar kind of story. So, mm-hmm. you know, what happens is there is um, encroachment by kind of people of European descent. Uh, there is kind of, they're forced into treaties. And usually uh, the, the formula is get Native American people to seed land in, res- in response, they will get paid money and and supplies, uh, right? Uh, and they're guaranteed and they get other land over here. Um, right. And then what happens is though systematically those promises inevitably are broken, right? Um, and the federal government, despite being obligated to um, provide food and money and supplies every year, um, began withholding it um, to the point where the Dakota people were literally starving. Um, and, and when they were, they even approached um, uh, the, the federal government that was overseeing the supplies. Um, and there was this awful callous, um, response, um, uh, by one of the, 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 the main officers in charge. And he just said, let them eat grass was his response right. uh, yeah. to it, you know? Um, and so, you know, many children died, many elderly people died, um, you know, as a result of this. And so there was a violent uprising to basically seize the things that were theirs, uh, right. that were being held in these, uh, garrisons. Um, and, and there was, it's one of the broadest conflicts between Native Americans and white colonists um, in American history. Um, and as a result, the, the, it's eventually put down and then they capture 300 Dakota men uh, and accuse them, you know, of murder and, uh, and are holding them. Uh, and they, they send a request to Abraham Lincoln to execute all of them, like all 300 of them. Uh, and Lincoln, you know, to his credit, um, actually slows it all down and says, because they had been tried by these sham military tribunals, like many times, six at a time, trials mm-hmm. less, lasting like a few minutes uh, before a, a, a capital punishment, you know, uh, verdict was read. Uh, mm-hmm. And Lincoln slows it all down, has his attorneys look it over. And he actually commutes the sentences of all but 38 um, mm-hmm. of, of these men. But for thir- but he signs the death warrants for 38 Dakota men. Uh, uh, who are who are in fact executed um, in mass uh, in Mankato, um, uh, Minnesota. Mm. There, but he's he gets that, and he's he's considering these two things at the same time: the Emancipation Proclamation and the, this request to execute um, uh, Indigenous people. Um, and you know, it's very complex. But again, these layers, right, that are right, right on top of each other. I think that's the insight for me. Was yeah, you know, I. I knew much more about African-American history than I did about indigenous history. Mm-hmm. But when I thought of them, they were in these two separate siloed columns, right? That's I right. Yeah. I didn't think of them together. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the biggest things I learned working on this book is that, wow, these things are so interwoven. Uh, and the through line, you know, that, that connects them both is um, what's driving European Christian colonists, uh, right? What's driving them? What did you find? What's driving them? Well, what's driving them is a particular interpretation of Christianity. Um, you know, that um, this thing called the doctrine of discovery, you know, we could talk about that. Um, we will unpack that, but, but, it's, you know, but it's a very, it's the version of Christianity that lands on the shores is very much uh, one that is committed to white supremacy uh, and and violence and occupation. I mean, that's that's the version of Christianity that that lands on the shores in the, uh, you know, in, in the sort of fifteen uh, hundreds and sixteen hundreds. So, what did this all ta- teach you about the story of American identity? Yeah, well, it's it's clear to me that like that's really where we are in the country today. Yeah. You know, our biggest divides are not really about policy. Yeah. Or how we're going to solve some particular, you know, problem we're all facing. It's not mm-hmm. about economics. It's it really is the question of like who belongs, mm-hmm. who's the country for, who belongs here. Like this, those big identity questions that are really driving our deepest, um, you know, differences. And and I and I think what it became clear about is that these go all the way back. You know, one of the fundamental dividing lines are, um, you know, that we're seeing in kind of this uprising of white Christian nationalism and other movements are really uh, come down to two diametrically opposed visions of the country. Like, are we, uh, 
you know, a divinely ordained promised land for European Christians? Mm -hmm. Like, is that who the country is and for? Um, or are we a pluralistic democracy, you know, where everybody, regardless of race and religion, stands on equal footing? Uh, and we've never fully answered that question. I think these these two competing opposed trends have been with us since before the Republic, and they're still tearing the country apart today. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. All right. So, Robbie, now we're, we're coming back. Um, Robbie, I have so much to say after what you just said in that last segment, particularly this question of identity and the stories that we are still struggling through. Um, you know, in, in one respect, I can see that it can feel like a shameful thing. We've never resolved these. Like, how could we? It has been 500 years, mm. right? 500 years of European contact on this land with Native people and then bringing um, Africans to the land in order to build up uh, uh, coffers of wealth. But we have never yet struggled through and resolved the question of who this nation is for, even though we are what? We are, I'm so bad with math. We are. 200, 100, 160 something years from the end of the Civil War. And we still have not um, resolved that question. And yet, you can also flip the perspective and see it not as this shameful thing, but rather to say we've had 500 years under a hegemony of one story. And it's literally, literally only in the last maybe 30 years that that story, maybe 60 years if you count it from the civil rights movements, that pushback in the civil rights movement of that hegemony of a story being challenged, but in a major way, really, you could literally say even just like since the Obama years, that mm -hmm. it's been the hegemony of that story has actually been like really shoved forward, right? Like moved. And so now having the hegemony of that story been kind of unmoored, we actually have a window of opportunity. Mm. This is now a window of opportunity, a new window of opportunity to begin to contest and reshape our American narrative. Um, that's another way to see it. What do you think of that? I think that's right. You know, I I I I want to say that you know the the work that the 1619 project did was a Herculean effort to dislodge that one narrow vision of 1776. And you know, if you think about this in kind of like imagery, um, you know, with 1776, what you think about is um, I, I there's like two images that come to mind, yeah, yeah. Uh, both of which are on postage stamps right. or on paintings. You know, one of them is the white guys in Philadelphia kind of standing around, posed very awkwardly around the table with their quill <laughs> yeah, pen, yeah. right? And their colonial which, finery. Which never happened, by the way. Like that yeah. actually never happens. <laughs> right. But we got it kind of all laid out in a painting that comes down to a postage stamp. Right. And then the other one um, is this other painting called The Spirit of 1776. It has these three white guys, one with a fife, one with some drums, bandaged around his head, right? Marching to freedom. Right. Um, and in fact, my, as entry, my, my, uh, I've been, a middle school, um, middle schooler uh, son at home, and he's just now taking um, American history. Oh. And the textbook he brought home has that spirit of 1776. He's, he's in uh, public school here. But uh, speaking of, I think, progress. So they are pairing that textbook uh, with Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz's Indigenous History of the United States. Really? Um, so it's pretty nice to kind of see this this pairing um, wow. because actually the book does a decent job, even though it's got that cover, it's, it's an AP American history book. And it mm -hmm. actually has a decent job of covering um, African kind of contact and, 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 and slavery. Uh, but it was very thin on native American oh, uh, history. And so they're supplementing it with, uh, with this book. So I think something yeah. like that, we hear all about the bands and the, uh, you know, um, and those are real and troubling, but I do think there is this other movement of real efforts to uh, tell a broader story. And so, you know, I, I think one last thing I'll say is um, this imagery is really important, right? Because whatever's in that frame 
as a, as an origin story mm. is what you have to account for. And whatever, what, what, what other story you're going to tell has to account for that. Right. Um, and it can leave out stuff that isn't accounted in that original image. So the, you know, if you remember that original image of the 1619 project, right. um, when it was right. in the New York times, it was, it was not the white dudes in Philadelphia. It was an ocean. It was the water. With a ship, right? Yeah. It was water and there was a ship. And so mm-hmm. what's on that ship, right? It's, it's um, kidnapped African-Americans arriving in the British colonies, um, you know, destined for enslavement. Yeah. Um, that's what's happening there. And so if that's the image, you have, and that's not the Mayflower, right? It's, right. it's the other ship uh, that we're having to, you know, you have to account for that. And whatever yeah. other story you tell about America, you've got to account for that stuff. And so I think one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is say, like, yes, like, and let's back it up even further mm. um, uh, and kind of bring it back to 1490, at least to 1493, right? Mm-hmm. Where we can kind of tell this kind of first contact of, of indigenous people um, in that story. Because by, you know, by the time we get to 1619, we have a century of uh, European indigenous contact, right? Mm-hmm. That's already, you know, underway. Mm-hmm. That's actually really true. Most people really have no idea of that story because for most, especially on the East Coast where I am, most folks start their history when the English got here, but the Spanish yeah. were here like a hundred years before the English, which yeah. is kind of amazing when you think about it. Okay. So I kind of want to take a step back and I want to shift um, to your work with PRRI, right? And also your your first book. We're well, not actually not first, but white um, white too long. And then we'll move forward from there. But okay. you yep. talk about the shift in the American demographic, right, away yeah. from being a majority white Christian nation. So um, again, in the in your prologue, you talk about from in two thousand and eight, it was fifty four percent white Christian nation, um, and then in two thousand sixteen, just eight years later. We are now 47%. And then just a year ago, we're now at 42%. So, you know, it's funny because most people cite the demographic um, shift as going to happen within 20 years, yeah. right? But you have said, nah, this thing already happened pretty much. I mean, the the most important part about it, the cultural shift has happened. Um, so I want to ask you, you know, mm. you say that they are increasingly – um, conservative white Christians are increasingly, quote, fleeing, displaced from the center of a new American story. And I love how you put that, because I do think that that's that that has been honestly like the goal is for me and for the people that I know who are actually pushing back against this hegemony of this story, hegemonic story, is decentering it, not erasing not erasing the um, white imagination or erasing the white understanding of what happened, but decentering it so that there's space for another story to be told. Mm. So I want to know what in mm. their narrative, though, tells them that they should be at the center. Yeah. Well, it's funny. It's, it's, it's I think you can think of this two ways. You can think of it as decentering it, but if, but the thing that you're decentering is actually this impossibly uh, innocent and dishonest myth. Mm. So it's not actually real history that we're decentering. That's right. That's true. But it's a version of history, mm-hmm. uh, but it's, it, it's a dishonest history. It's a mythologized history of impossible innocence, right? Um, mm. James Baldwin has this great line. I'm going to butcher it, but there's a great little paragraph where he talks about, you know, in the histories we love to tell about ourselves in America, we were, always noble. We always treated migrants and the indigenous people with respect. We, you know, we were uh, always virtuous. Like it's just all of this kind of nobility mm-hmm. uh, in this story. And it just screens out all the violence and all of the genocide and mm-hmm. all of the enslavement. I mean, all of that stuff just goes by the wayside mm-hmm. um, into this kind of, and, and that, that often is what passes for patriotism, yeah. right? Is, is that yeah. kind of thinking, um, dishonest thinking about the country. So I think we are decentering that. There's another way in which I think actually um, I'm kind of wanting to hold, uh, you know, white European Christians. I kind of want to still hold them at the center of the story, um, but the whole story. Right. Mm. Um, uh, And and that whole story has to be about first contact and it has to be about because because, you know, one way of thinking about this story is, um, yeah, you can't just sort of tell this rose-colored glasses story, but you can't understand uh, if you look at Indigenous people today and where they are in the country, um, what their lives are like. 
that story doesn't make any sense without understanding uh, European Christians who, who and, and Christians not incidental, like the Christian part of it was the driver uh, for the treatment of indigenous people, right? Uh, yeah. They were seen to be barbarians, savages, like the Declaration of Independence calls indigenous people merciless savages. Like that, those words are in the Declaration of Independence. Wow. Right. And so when we think about that, I mean, that's so um, there. And so I, I think it, it's, it's sort of white people wanting to be the center of this virtuous story and avoid being the center of this much more troubling story at the same time. That is exactly the, the right. Oh, I, I, yes, that is the MO. <laughs> I'm yeah. very familiar with that. It's like we want to claim responsibility for all the good stuff and then say we had yeah. nothing to do with any of the bad stuff. So, but but I still, now I'm actually intrigued by your desire to keep them at the center, hold white people at the center of the story. I wonder, see, for me, I understand that um, when I place the white imagination at the center of the formation of the current world we live in, right? So the current world we live in was legislated, adjudicated, and structured in order and by the by the um, assumptions within the Western white imagination, and that's why we find. Um, we find these all of these stories kind of coming together all all at the same time. We find the story of the indigenous um, genocide absolutely coming together at the same time and and in partnership actually with the story of the enslavement, first indenture and then enslavement yeah. of, of Africans. And later, which I love that you brought in again in that in that first story, but it's also true elsewhere in our history, later the question of who is American, who and 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 who can be a citizen, and um, you know Benjamin Franklin fighting for the reality that only white people should be able to be citizens, right? And those white people had to be English because they're the ones who found the country, according to Benjamin Franklin. So the Germans weren't going to be allowed to be citizens or white, um, and the Irish had to fight their way to be white. You know, and actually yeah. they were citizens, but they were not really, not really. They were on the level. Yeah, no Irish need apply, right? right? That was a sign we saw all the time. Yeah. Exactly. Jewish yeah. people as well, right? So yeah. so I guess what I'm I understand your desire to keep them at the center when I think of it that way. Do you mean it in that way or do you mean it in another way? No, I appreciate you coming back. I think what I really mean is I'm, I'm wanting to hold white supremacy and Christianity at the at the center of the American story because I, uh, I think that we are not going to be able to reckon with our present until we hold those things as central to who we have been uh, and, and in many ways who people who look like me have tried to make the country be. Yeah, uh, and so kind of holding on to that as a central truth. So I don't mean holding. I, I should be very careful. I don't mean like holding white people at the center of the story. But I do yeah. think we've got to hold. Um, if we're honest, we got to hold this entanglement of white supremacy empowered by Christianity. Yeah, um, at the center of the American story. And if we're wanting to live into um, that other thread we talked about, the thread of a pluralistic democracy and equality, and these other things, um, we're going to have to reckon mm-hmm. with that. Uh, very long, very intentional. As you said, it was like legislated, advocated for, preached, like all of those things, right? Uh, this was not like some side project. This was like a central project um, uh, that that we're having to reckon with and and trying really to just you know be clear eyed about dismantling. Wow. So okay. So I love how you, again how you structured the book into these four sections that each trace the pre-American story on a particular land, reveal the atrocity that was that happened on that fruit. I mean, the fruit of the of that story um, on that land, and then also how was repair sought on those lands. So you go through Emmett Till. Duluth and the Tulsa race massacre. So I wonder if you could actually just share with us a few of the like aha moments you had mm-hmm. with all three of them. Yeah, well, you know, I think most of the aha moments I had was um, really in the encounters with people mm-hmm. on the ground, you know, because mm-hmm. I spent time in, in each of these places mm-hmm. uh, meeting people who had worked on uh, these efforts at commemoration and truth telling, mm-hmm. uh, right? A- a- amid uh, a you know massive effort to forget, right? 
you know, and so right. these are the people who are the truth tellers, right? Mm-hmm. And we're coming together. Uh, so it's really amazing to talk to folks like, you know, in, in you know, so my home state of Mississippi, um, you know, the the whole world knows Emmett Till's name, you know, because of uh, the role that that his, his death played in kind of sparking the civil rights movement. But if you've gone to Tallahatchie, Mississippi, where it all went down as recently as like 2000, hmm. there was nothing there on the ground marking uh, those events. Um, wow. and no markers, no, you know, nothing to tell the story there. And finally a group, you know, came together and said like, we, we've got to do better than this. Like, you know, we have to tell the truth about what happened here in this community. Um, especially since it was such a, not only like this horrific death, but justice was never brought right to the killers. No, that's right. right. Um, never. Right. Right. And so I think kind of talking about this as a massive injustice and, and issuing an apology for that injustice and then commemorating the event and the idea that if we tell the story, um, it can provide a platform for us building right. you know, something better for uh, the next generation. And, you know, remember these were, um, you know, Tallahatchie County is a very rural, very poor county. So these are not like mm-hmm. people with postgraduate degrees and lots of money. Um, but nonetheless, they kind of got together and this, you know, it was, descendants of enslaved people and sharecroppers on the one hand and mm. descendants of enslavers on the other. Wow. And, you know, in rural communities, these people know each other's families, right? So that's it's right. like, I know what your great grandfather did to my great grandfather. Like that's wow. in the mix. And yet they still came together, um, you know, with a real commitment to tell him Till's story. Uh, and, uh, and they worked together over a couple of decades. And, um, and just this past month, like it came to fruition in the, you know, creation of the Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley National Monument that mm-hmm. President Biden, you know, signed into law. And it was these moving words from Kamala, Vice President Kamala Harris at the event. You know, she said, um, uh, let us not be seduced into thinking uh, that we will be better if we forget. Yes. You know, we will be better if we remember. We will be stronger if we remember. There was these amazing words uh, there that I think echoed the commitments of these, you know, intrepid folks that really worked um, you know, tirelessly um, to tell, and, and with some resistance, as you might imagine, yeah. right, to telling that story and still stayed at it. What did you find about the origin story, like the, the pre-Mississippi story mm, yeah. that you saw that linked, that kind of laid the groundwork for the fruit of Emmett Till's evisceration to happen? Yeah. Well, one way of kind of, you know, I'm backing into it is, uh, you know, to ask, like, so what creates a society? where the thing is, you know, kidnapping, torture, murder of this 14-year-old boy happens and his killers are acquitted, right? Um, You know, how do we create, what goes into creating a society that that's even possible, right? Uh, And so I think that's kind of one guiding question. So if you trace that back, right, yeah, you trace it back through Jim Crow, uh, you pace it back through enslavement. And then if you keep going, right. you trace it to the Trail of Tears and the forced removal of Choctaw uh, Creek and Chickasaw uh, 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 Indians in, in Mississippi. Yep. Um, and, and you go all the way back. I have, you know, I have a sentence in the book where it said, you know, Emmett Till was born in 1941, but his story uh, uh, begins uh, 400 years earlier uh, in 1541. And that's the year uh, that Hernando de Soto uh, first arrived at the Mississippi River claiming uh, that entire basin uh, for Spain. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And there's a, there's a if you, I'll, I'll tell you just quick, there's a, I yeah. describe in the book um, how central this is. Like this sounds like, okay, well, it's obscure history maybe, but um, there's a painting of Hernando de Soto and that event of him arriving at the Mississippi. It is one of only four paintings in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol here in Washington, D.C., uh, and it's there because uh, uh, it was put there in the mid 1800s because it was a significant event as the people saw it in the creation of the country as we know it. Oh right. It was God. Spanish claims to land. And in that painting, it's got it all. It's got the entire kind of violent conquest there. It's got Hernando de Soto as the center of the painting and he's on his big white horse and looks very regal and, right. and his, you know, finery. And it's got on the left side, it's got his soldiers gathered behind him with all the like, cannon and weapons and swords and battle axes. And, you know, and they, and the, the weaponry actually spills out onto the ground on the bottom of the painting. And then if you follow it around to the right, the thing in the bottom right-hand corner of the painting is this giant crucifix 
uh, that's being raised in the vill- in, in the like center of an indigenous village, uh, right? And and so it's all there, right? The violence, the Christianity justifying it, and the and and that that was not like a. I think when I saw those kind of images, we've all seen them of yeah, the flag being planted and the crucifix being raised. Right. That I think I thought maybe it was like, okay, they're having like a worship service to thank God for a safe voyage or something like that. Oh. Something kind of benign. But, you know, when you understand like the, uh, what was happening there, these were actually part of the ritual of land theft. They were the ritual to claim those lands. Uh, and the, and the raising of that crucifix was the moral authority, um, not just the political authority, but the moral authority uh, for claiming those lands uh, in the name of what they thought of as other Christian nations um, in in Europe. So it's really central to our nation's story, right? I mean, there are people in the middle of the 19th century put that painting up to say, yep, this is like one of four images of how we get to be who we are in the country. Wow. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. Okay, so Robbie, tell us about Duluth. Duluth, well, you know, so I'm from Mississippi, like I said, uh, deep south. Um, uh, and uh, the other you know, state I, I uh, talk about is, is Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. So both of those states are pretty conservative, right? Um, so Mississippi right. is in the deep, deep south with a you know, really awful civil rights record. Oklahoma um, is, uh, I think, the only state uh, in which every county uh, voted for Donald Trump. Um, uh, and so it's a very, very red, uh, state. It's not in the South, but it is a very, very red and conservative state. Wow. Uh, so I didn't want to just pick on, you know, conservative states. I wanted to, and, or the South. Um, so, uh, I wanted to tell a story, of, um, uh, in, in, uh, Minnesota, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and Minnesota of course has been on our radar. I mean, it's Minneapolis, right. Where George Floyd was killed was That's not right. in the South. It was Minneapolis, yeah. right up up in Minnesota, nice Minnesota, mm-hmm. um, you know where that happened. Um, and so I want to tell the story. I had actually stumbled in the story in the last book, um, White Too Long, and I wrote just a little bit about it. Uh, but I realized it was a much bigger story to tell there. So I went back and talked to folks and, and kind of expanded the story. But essentially, what happens in in Minnesota um, is that there are um, there's a traveling circus going through town in 1921. Uh, there's a group of African-Americans working uh, on the circus. They're in town, they're in Duluth for a single day. Uh, and uh, there is a, a, a young white woman who accuses uh, several of them of sexually assaulting her falsely. Um, and they are um, arrested, taken to the Duluth jail. Um, they're actually pulled off a train. The train is actually leaving town to go to the next stop. They're pulled off the train, arrested, uh, taken to the Duluth jail. And, Rumors start flying around Duluth um, uh, that these three circus workers had raped uh, a white girl in town and a crowd of 10,000 people gather oh um, outside uh, the jail. And and they just utterly destroy the jail. Like they're working on the jail with like jackhammers and ha- and saws and like that's and the police make some effort to protect them, but they're just completely overwhelmed. Oh my god! Um, and they haul them out, and three of them are hung on the town square, just a few blocks away from the jail. Wow. Um, uh, you know, all of them innocent, um, uh, and uh, that's a tenth of the population of the town at the time that turned out. Uh, people that came from the theater to come watch the lynching. Oh, uh, you know, in, in, in Duluth, you know, and and. It's just remarkable. This is not Mississippi. It's not Alabama. Um, this is Minnesota, right? That this happens um, in 1921. And again, like no one really brought to justice, um, you know, and, and then this massive effort at forgetting that it ever happened. Right, right. Like covering it up. Uh, it, it's kind of remarkable that, um, you know, pretty late, uh, you could even in the 80s, um, there were some efforts to tell the truth about it and huge denial. Uh, from all quarters that it even happened uh, and, and efforts to cover it up for in the, in the archives of um, one of the major newspapers there uh, the, you know, they've got an original version of the paper um, and uh, somebody rips the, rip the story out of the original version of the paper to kind of even hide it from the archives. Oh my God. That, that's how the forgetting, uh, you know, went there. 
and, and so this, again, this group of people, and, and I think what's inspiring to me, again, it's this is like it was one African-American man, one white woman and one Latina woman who just learned about the story and thought, oh, my gosh, like we have to tell the truth about what happened here. Wow. Uh, and they, they built this beautiful plaza. Um, that is right where the lynching happened, right across the street from where the lynching happened. It's a big, like 75 by 50 foot plaza. It's got images of the men and some of their biographies. And then these quotes about pluralism and justice and healing and repair and all that stuff. And it's actually become, you know, what I would not flippantly call like a a kind of sacred space uh, in Duluth uh, where, where people gather uh, for civil rights marches. And, and when, when George Floyd was killed and there were, you know, protests erupting everywhere in Duluth, um, this was the place everyone went. Like everybody just knew there was a kind of place for this kind of expression, this outpouring of grief and anger uh, and one and, and speeches were given, but it was all happened. Like, they, they had a place for that because they had done the work because they, they did this in 2003. Um, so it was kind of ahead of this last round of racial reckoning that we've had. Yeah. And, 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 but because of that, when uh, these protests happened, there was a space for everybody to go. It's it's kind of amazing because I mean I was there. I went to Duluth around 2013, I think. Mm-hmm. And um it was and they showed me. They took me to the square. They told me the story. They didn't tell me about the the circus worker part of it. So when I read your, your mm-hmm. book, I was like, "Oh my gosh, I just got more details that I didn't know." Um but the thing that really started to like go around in my head around that time that I didn't know again I was not taught in history class is that throughout the 19 teens and went and uh, 1920s that was the time of these major white led race riots race massacres yeah. around the country and in all three cases that you cite in your book you have Emmett Till which of course happened 30 years later yeah. um but then also here and then in Tulsa, in all three cases, they are set off by a white woman accusing a black man of assaulting her. That yeah. That's really amazing that this fervor was happening really in large part because of the initiative of white women. Mm. But then what you just brought in is that it was a white woman who began to create redemption for this space along with a Latina yeah. woman and a black man. So that's, that's, it's, it's just very poetic actually to me. I see yeah. poetry in this. Yeah. And in Mississippi, um, one of the key leaders was a woman named Betty Bobo Pearson, um, uh, one of the white from the white community. And she came from a long plantation owning family wow. uh, in the, in the Mississippi Delta. Wow. Um, and she was one of the key people bringing people along in the white community in the, in the Delta. So the strength, the courage of a few white women actually has, we've seen now, we have evidence, has the ability to create an opening, a space for reckoning yeah. in our nation. And how about, so can you tell us a little bit more about the Tulsa massacre? Because I know most people who are listening yeah. have heard a lot about it, but what was your aha in your research there? Well, you know, there, I think uh, the connections for me were about how tightly intertwined, um, you know, yeah, we heard a lot uh, in 2021, it was the centennial of, of the um, uh, the Tulsa race uh, massacre, um, which, by the way, used to be called the Tulsa, Tulsa race riot, mm-hmm. uh, right? Uh, uh, when right. kind of white people were spinning it to blame it on the African-American population. Um, and only recently has, uh, you know, in the work of this last effort um, uh, called the Tulsa Race Massacre, but how tightly that uh, those events were um, to a, a very similar thing that, called, that was called the Reign of Terror among the Osage, um, uh, and just down the road, like from Tulsa. Like this is so we have this movie uh, that we may have read the book, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, big movie coming out next month, uh, telling the story of the Osage, oh, and and wow. essentially. The short story is that, um, you know, Oklahoma, um, the the entire state uh, really was intended to be, um, to put it bluntly, a kind of dumping ground for indigenous refugees who had been forcibly removed from all over the country and shipped to Oklahoma. It was was originally called Indian country or Indian territory. That's right. uh, On maps uh, Mm -hmm. there. And the reason Oklahoma, by the way, looks so strange is because um, 
it used to be much bigger. And as states were being formed in that area, they kept taking bites out of Indian country mm. uh, or uh, the other kind of, you know, the formation of the other states there. Mm. And what was left was this awkward looking weird state right on top of Texas, that mm. little bit was left. Um, and of course, as soon as they were there, they were promised these lands forever if they moved west of the Mississippi. And then very quickly, even there was, you know, uh, the whole, um, and we saw it in like uh, athletic team names, the Sooners. Right. Um, these are people who came in and encroached on Native American lands mm-hmm. um, uh, there. But, but the, the story is that they then got pushed even more into less desirable places, even inside of Oklahoma. Right. Which is supposed to be promised for their use. Right. And so they get pushed on these kind of rocky, arid places that were terrible for farming. And they were essentially impoverished until, lo and behold, they found massive oil reserves right under, under those lands. Wait, right? can I just tell you? There's a yeah. story in my own family's my own family yeah. history of mm. my mom. My mom tells a story that her her brother told her that one day um, someone showed up on their doorstep from Oklahoma saying, "Hey, brother, or not brother, but you know, cousin, right. um, you got to come because there's." In our in our family story, there's the story of connection to the tribes, to the Choctaw, sorry, not Choctaw, forgive me, the Chickasaw mm. and Cherokee people. And then later on, my aunt said Creek too, but no, it's Chickasaw and, and Cherokee because they lived in um, Northwest Kentucky where they were. Mm. And they, this, what I've since discovered, it's very likely that they never walked the Trail of Tears. Instead, they went up into the hills and hid mm-hmm. and then under lived for the rest of their lives under assumed identities of white or mixed race, that kind of thing, in order to, um, in order to escape removal. Mm-hmm. But yes, in my own family story, there is this, 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 uh, this vignette of somebody showing up and saying, you got to come to Oklahoma because we discovered oil there. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, you got to claim it. You got to claim your land. And my great, my great grandfather, Hiram, um, the story goes, says, nah, I like Philadelphia too much. <laughs> <laughs> he actually said, nah, he did. He had a lot of land in Philadelphia that years later was stolen from him by eminent domain. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a remarkable story because, you know, again, they get there by being refugees, right, mm-hmm. to Oklahoma. Um, and then even when they're there, they get pushed off this less desirable land. And then oil is discovered under that land. And you can see where this story goes, right? Yeah. What ends up happening is there's this thing that ends up being called the Reign of Terror, where- White people, uh, thinking they've pushed them onto this worthless land, suddenly know the value of it. And it's only indigenous people that control the, the mineral rights uh, to it. Um, and they just engage in actually a, a, a campaign of wholesale murder uh, to steal. And it then even involves like marrying into an indigenous family and then killing off people so that you can inherit, uh, like killing your wife, killing your kids so you can inherit the oil um, rights there. And, and again, we'll get the story, but, but that story happens within a decade of uh, the Tulsa race massacre. And so again, when you wow. see these two together, right, this is not, wow. you know, these are, these are not coincidental. They are systematic and like intentional efforts that are consistent with a whole colonial history, um, you know, in, in the U S so they, it's just they they look like one thing if you see them as these kind of wow episodic explosions of violence, but if you just see them in the sweep, no, they're just like one more step right on the way to kind of enforcing white supremacy, holding back people of color, whether indigenous or African American, and reserving the best uh, for people of European descent, and then justifying again. This is really important, like justifying the whole thing. Um, right with uh, with a kind of veneer of of Christianity and that that supports uh, is white white supremacy. You know, in in Tulsa, one more quick detail. Oh yeah, uh, I dug up the sermon uh, that was preached in one of the most prominent Methodist churches in Tulsa right after the Tulsa race massacre, right. which happened on like a Tuesday and Wednesday. So this is the following Sunday. Oh my God! Um, and uh, and they brought up the bishop from Dallas to give the sermon in Tulsa, not his normal pulpit. Because they wanted a, an authority, right, to kind of spin this, um, and it it is it's it's one of those heartbreaking sermons I've ever read. I mean, wow. it is it blames uh, all the violence on the African American population in Tulsa. Uh, says, you know, well, where there were white people, they were just kind of rogue, 
you know, people. Um, and then the only blame it lays at the feet of white people. And again, this is a very wealthy white church. Um, it, it literally says um, that if 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 there's if we were to blame anywhere, it's because we overlooked vice uh, among the servants who worked in our houses, and we allowed vice. Essentially, we allowed vice. We white people allowed vice to exist among the help. Oh my and, god! And that, is, that is the sole kind of. If we're culpable, that's kind of where we're culpable. Is that we didn't crack down on some paternalistic way. And that's the sermon that gets preached, right? From the kind of big pulpit um, at Boston Avenue Methodist Church in, in Tulsa. You can understand then why they never talked about it because they literally probably thought they didn't have to. It's yeah, not your fault. No, no. It was a complete, you know, exculpation of, of any white responsibility. My. And the mayor follows suit. The, you know, it's everybody just falls in line after the sermon gets widely printed, uh, not only in, in Oklahoma, but in Methodist circles all over the country. It's a Methodist yeah. Wow. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Okay. <laughs> I'm like totally, like literally my whole body, it feels like I'm doing like spins right now. Like I'm spinning. All right. So this feels spiritual to me, Robbie. Have you gotten a sense through your research that this is more than what we see or even our minds? This is more than about just thinking or logic or mm. the material flesh that this feels spiritual? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's, no one who's can look at predominantly, I'm going to be like clear about my own location here, but I don't think anyone can look at predominantly white churches today and think that they're healthy. Wow. Wow. Like it's just really obvious, um, right? That, yeah. that we're sick. Yeah. Um, and this, this quote from uh, James Baldwin has really stayed with me. And I think it really has been a beacon for me to keep going yeah. um, through some of this, History, um, it's very difficult yeah. history to write, to read, to uh, kind of dig up. But mm-hmm. um, he, he was asked one time, essentially, uh, he was asked why there's not like more like constant violence uh, toward white people from African-American people, like mm-hmm. given the history, mm-hmm. right? Given this awful history. And Baldwin says, you know, well, look, we, we do know white people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know them well. Like We've lived intimately with them for centuries. Um, so it's not that we don't know them. Um, uh, but then he says this. He says, we have, uh, we have often thought of them as the slightly mad victims of their own brainwashing. Wow. Right? The slightly mad victims of their own brainwashing. Wow. What? What and what insightful, right, diagnosis yeah. of the problem, yeah. right? Yes. And I think you could see he's dead on, you know, because like, what are we fighting over now? Like, we're we're fighting uh, to prevent that diagnosis, right, from from being clear. Wow. Um, you know that we're we really have that 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 mythology of the history we were talking about earlier, that impossibly innocent myth that we've been telling each other. Um, have led us, I mean, I'll say us, we white Christians, yeah, I think, yeah. are really susceptible, I think, to living in a world of uh, that, that's disconnected from reality. What is so hard? Like, I, I mean, it really comes from like the pit of my soul. Yeah. What is so dangerous about having one's understanding of the world shift? Yeah. Why? Why? Why fight well, I, so much? I think there's like a material answer to that question. It's a psychological answer to that question. Okay. Um, I, you know, I think the, um, I, I, I end the book with this section. Uh, you may not have gotten there yet, um, uh, but it, it's, it's essentially, I, I kind of put on my theology hat at the end of it. Right. Uh, and I call it confession and call, um, a word to my fellow white Christians. Okay. Um, and that's kind of one of the last sections in the book. Yeah. Um, but there, I, I try to articulate what we're really saying when we are trying to suppress this history to not face it. Um, and I, I think it really does boil down to two things. Like um, we'd like to feel like we're justified in keeping everything we've worked so hard to take is one way of putting it. Yeah. Um, wow. And the other thing is I think we just want to think of ourselves as good. And it's really hard. But it's so weird. But Robbie, at the center of Southern Baptist. Oh, I know. Yeah. You know, I know where you're going. Calvinist yeah. theology is 
utter depravity. Yeah. Utter. And, you know, depravity. I grew up, yeah. No, I grew up going to like, you know, um, on occasion, tent revivals and farm fields, yes. right? And, the and in those events. Yeah, those are, we even had like at one of them, I remember this old tradition of a mourner's bench yeah. down front. Right. Yeah. And the whole point of that was if the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin, you often like resist, you wrestle, right, with it, but you go sit on that bench while you're wrestling and you would see people like weeping, right? And sometimes like crying out loud and in some cases even rolling on the ground, right? Wow. As they're like wrestling with this kind of conviction of the spirit. So yes, this idea of confession and that we are not good, right? In fact, we're prone to sin yeah. uh, is so central, right? But but I think it's, again, a sign of like, we're just not well, um, we're right? That we can't face well. that. Um, oh my gosh. All right. So I have I have one last, yeah. thing, well, actually two last questions for you. Um, the first, I was watching the commentary on the second Republican debate. This is going to date this, you know, our, our, our taping of, of the, of the time, obviously, but I, I have to ask you this. Um, Rachel Maddow um, posited in the midst of the commentary that Republicans no longer want democracy. Right. Mm. And we all know from the stats and also from your research that the heartbeat of the Republican party is white Christians, right? So, and in particular, white evangelicals, that's the heartbeat. That's the strongest heartbeat comes from, from that, that block. And what she said is that she said she believes that Republicans, you know, we can also, I, you can insert white Christians no longer want democracy. And what she said is they are not interested in it at all. They're not interested in policy debates. Um, and that's why they're not interested really in the policy debates that are flying, even in the GOP debates, because, and that's why when you look at the GOP debates, you're not really seeing anything about really good policy debates. You're seeing arguments about curtains, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and just, it's, it's really nonsensical. And what she said is instead, what GOP voters are actually making clear through their overwhelming support of this four times criminally indicted ex-president Trump is that what they actually want right now is a strong man. Mm. And so I guess my question, and you actually, I guess you did begin to, to speak about this um, just now, but can you go a little further into what is your message for white Christians who are desperate for a strong man? Well, um, on democracy, I, I think that this one thing about history, um, you know, it, it that whole idea of even phrasing it, that white Christians are no longer supportive of democracy assumes that they once were staunchly in support of wow. democracy. But that's not really what the historical record tells us. Wow. Right. Um, you know, if we think about so, you know, we think about just Emmett Till, we're talking about him, you know, it was notable and awful that, you know, the, the jury right. was all white men, right. Uh, that tried his killers and acquitted him in just over 67 minutes is how long they deliberated. That's right. Um, uh, and, but you know, that's pretty awful. But when you think about that, um, the way that the voter rolls were in Tallahatchie County in 1955, there, there was no other possibility that it was going to be an all white jury oh. because there was not a single African-American registered to vote. In, Tal- in, a, in a county that's about half black, in all of in all of Tallahatchie County, oh my god, because voter suppression, terrorism, all of that had right. been so rampant, right? Just right. completely suppressed uh, uh, voting um, there. So I, I think we kind of think about that, and though and those efforts, right, were supported by white Christian power structures, right, and so they were against right. democracy uh, and representative voting um, all across the South. Um, uh, there, uh, even further back, um, you know, the kind of dismantling of reconstruction, um, those were all anti-democratic. Yep. So they were white rule. That's um, right. That's right. Uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of that's, that's what white Christians were for. So white Christians don't really overall don't really have a great grounding in commitments to democracy. Um, it, it's looked like that when they have been, when we have been, I say we, when we have been committed to democracy, it's often been kind of instrumental, um, you know, when it comes to an outcome that we like, 
uh, we're committed to democracy when, when it's mostly white people voting uh, because we've arranged it that way, um, you know, or when the outcome, you know, when we gerrymandered districts so that the outcome is going to be uh, thinking about the struggles in Alabama right now right. over over uh, redistricting uh, in Alabama. Uh, so I think that's one of the biggest problems right now is that it's not like we have a deep well of democratic sentiment to draw on. Right. Uh, in, in white Christian communities. It's actually something that needs to be learned anew and a new commitment um, there. And because and, it's not something we can just fall, we're not going to fall back on something we've never had. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and wherever our guests lay their head that night. This episode was engineered, edited, and produced by Corey Nathan of Scan Media. And Freedom Road podcast is executive produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for our updates, which are on Substack. Um, And my voice always goes up when I say that because I'm so excited that we now have this new platform on Substack where you're going to get regular updates about what's happening on Freedom Road, but also hear from other writers, not just myself, but writers in our global writers group and also some of our consultants who, who contribute from time to time. But it's an opportunity for us to really think deeply. Also, if you are a paid subscribe member on Substack and also or a member of our Patreon community, then you get a special treat. You're going to get a behind the scenes conversation right now with Robbie Jones. We invite you to listen again. Join the conversation on Freedom Road. Thank you.